following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Colossians 1, 3-5. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, I am very excited uh, as we journey into our new sermon series. We kicked it off last week. Uh, it's, a, it's a study through the book of Colossians, and we're calling it Jesus Over Everything. Now, last week, if you were with us, if you braved that uh, so-called blizzard that we got, um, you, were, you heard kind of setting the framework, setting the groundwork for this book to understand. We really did a lot of context work uh, because context is key in understanding what the author is saying to his original audience and therefore how we can make sense of the, well, technically it's not a book, but a letter in its entirety. And if you missed that, I'd invite you to go back to the podcast, Sacred City Moline. Uh, we have a podcast. All the sermons get pumped out through there. You can catch up there. But for the sake of this morning, if you missed, if you weren't with us, I'll give you a brief overview here in the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians, like I said, is really a letter. And it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a young church in the now uh, non-existent city of Colossae. Um, And the reason why Paul is writing is because this church finds themselves in sort of a a rough spot here. They've they've come upon some challenges. Um, Specifically, their belief, their Christian belief, and their Christian conduct is under attack. And what's happening, because this is a diverse city, you've got a, a, a whole myriad of different types of people, ideologies, beliefs, religions, cultures, and this Christian faith uh, is trying to be infiltrated by two different parties. They're, on the more liberal end of the, the spectrum, you have um, the spiritual, more pagan, which would be uh, very focused on, on, on sort of like the Greek uh, mythology and the Greek gods and all of that stuff and, and the whole pantheon of uh, pagan gods who are trying to inject their stuff into Christianity. On the more conservative side, you have the traditionalist uh, Jewish religion, um, Jewish leaders or, or whoever that are trying to infiltrate uh, and inject and add to the gospel. That's not just Jesus, that Jesus is actually a gateway to the Jewish faith. Now, Christian faith says like all of the Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus. Everything in scriptures is actually pointing to Jesus. And so we, we really come to an issue here. What they're facing is, is that in Colossus, what they're realizing, or what, they, what Paul is trying to communicate to them, rather, is that anytime you take something from a different ideology or religion and try to add it to the Christian faith, this Christian faith actually stops being a Christ, the Christian faith. It's no longer the true authentic faith because when you take Jesus and you made him make him an addition or you add something to Jesus, Jesus is no longer at the center. You've got this sort of uh, nebulous belief system that doesn't really line up with orthodox belief, nor does it line up with you know, whatever else they're trying to pitch you. Um, and so this is really what happens. Is what, what happens is it becomes 
this idea of adding to Jesus, you create a designer religion, right? You, you create a, a religion that is made up. It's not real, has no real uh, foundation beneath it. And, and what's happening here at this point, Ephesus, who's the church planter of the church in Colossae, has gone to the Apostle Paul seeking counsel on how to course correct this church as they're facing attack from both sides of of the the more liberal and more conservative ends of the spectrum. Now, Paul hears this. He's actually sitting in a a jail cell. He can't go visit them, so he writes a letter. And as he hears this, um, he's going to respond. And and, And when you think about it, if we generalize here, the general MO of men um, when they hear a problem, what do they do? They try to fix it, right? Wives, you know this, right? He, he jumps right in. He tries to fix it. He tries to find that solution and bring that course correction so all things can be okay. And, and, and the, the wife is just sitting there. like, I just wanted you to listen to me, you know? And, and Paul, he will get to course correction here in this letter, but I want to show you that his initial response isn't to just dive right in and fix it. His, his initial response is actually quite different. He has this posture of authentic thanksgiving, and you can see this in verse 3. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now, Paul hears of the mess in Colossae. He hears of sort of the dysfunction that's going on because it's not just that this, this pressure is happening and sort of an external force. It's sort of infiltrated and, and made its way in. And so there are people, there are Christians, professing Christians who are dabbling in pagan religion and, and dabbling in, in Jewish faith. Things in Colossae aren't necessarily trending up and to the right. And so how can Paul... Say, we always give thanks for you. How can he have this genuine posture of thanksgiving for the church in Colossae when things don't seem to be going well? It's because Paul has gospel eyes to see where God is at work. Now, every week in our missional communities, we take time, intentional time in our prayer time. We, we, we gather together, we eat, we share a meal, we spend time in prayer together, and then we study God's word. And, and we're, we're trying to help one another become more uh, formed of disciples following Jesus. Now, part of our prayer routine is to share these evidences of grace, right? Share the things that we can see in our life where God has been at work and it's our hope that it's not just a a Tuesday night or a Wednesday night or Thursday night thing that you you do with your missional community, but it's something that actually trickles down and works its way into your own personal devotional life. So when you're laying there at the end of the day, and, and maybe it's been a rough day, maybe it's been a great day, but you are able to recount the evidences of grace that you've stumbled across throughout the day. Now this is actually... In some seasons, really easy because, man, God just has blessed us. Like you could literally walk around with a t-shirt that says hashtag blessed on it, right? It's just blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And so it's easy. It's like evidence of grace. Boom, 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 boom. But other times, it's like mining for gold, 
right? We have to, we have to dig through the, the, the mud and, and sift through the muck to find that one little nugget, that one thing that we see where, yes, God has not abandoned me. He has shown me his grace. And when we do this, we are able to say, look, here's where God's at work. Here's what he's up to in my life. Or, or even in the sense of, here's what he's up to in the life of other people. Now, th- this might be something like really practical, like, oh, it's an evidence of grace that I, I got a, a new car. But, but what we're working for here, and, and really what we're trying to see as we develop these gospel eyes is what's going on at the heart level? Like, what, what is God doing in my heart? How is he taking the belief of what I know and pressing it down into my heart in a way that causes me to live differently, to, to follow Jesus in all of my life? Now, the reason why we do evidences of grace and practice this on a weekly and hopefully daily basis is because this is the way that we develop gospel eyes to see where God is at work, and it gives us the ability to respond to that, to celebrate the fact that God has given us grace upon grace upon grace, even in the tough seasons. And the more that we see God's grace in our lives, the more thankful we become. And this is why Paul gives thanks. He sees the grace upon the the Colossian Colossian church, and he responds with thanksgiving. He sees three major things that causes him to give thanks. Now, what are these three things that that Paul sees? What, What are these evidences of grace that sparks Paul's thanksgiving? And it's right here in verses three through five. It starts us out, and and obviously, as we keep going on, he's just adding to the list of things that he could give thanks for. But what Paul is giving thanks for is the fact that he has heard of the evidential trifecta of true conversion. He's heard the evidential trifecta of true conversion. What does that mean? Okay, he's saying that I have heard that you guys have a true faith. And I can tell by these three pillars. I can see these three things that are going on among your church. And, it, and it's evident that you have heard the gospel, that you are actually Christians. Now, Paul sees these pillars of the church, right? What are they? Well, we're going to get into it. That they're faith, love, and hope. Right? These, these are really the three big umbrellas that if, if you look at someone and are trying to identify, like judging a tree by its fruit, this will indicate if somebody has an authentic faith in Jesus. Faith, love, and hope. And this is not the only place where Paul goes to this evidential trifecta. It's used throughout his, his other writings. But verses three through seven, and we'll get into those next week, affirmed that they have indeed heard and responded to the true gospel message. That this church has heard the teaching of Paul through this church planter Epaphras. Now we use the word gospel at Sacred City a lot. I mean like a lot. Like it comes out of my mouth. I don't know. If you want to keep a tally sometime on a sermon, I bet it ranges somewhere between 25 to 35, maybe 50 times uh, it's because this, this gospel 
It is shorthand for everything, or not everything, excuse me. This gospel is shorthand for what we believe. That would be so wrong to say it's shorthand for everything. I can't believe I said that. We use this word a lot, gospel-centered preaching, gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered community. We talk about living a gospel-centered life. It's in our DNA, right? As Sacred City Church, we say our DNA as a church is three things, gospel, community, and mission. And we do use this word a lot, and oftentimes without explaining, because as I said, it's shorthand for what we believe. I already preached like 45 minutes. If I were to stop and explain the whole Christian belief every time I say the word gospel, we would be here all day. And I don't know if you want that, but I certainly don't. And when some people hear the word gospel, they, they have their own assumptions. They have their own ideas about what it means. Now, we, we do a, a church membership class, which is going to be coming up in February here, um, and you'll hear more about that next week. Um, but one of the questions that we ask is, what is the gospel? It's kind of the introductory question. What is the gospel? And it's so interesting to hear the, the, the range of answers that you hear. Some are really good, and some are like, you know, the gospel is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's like, well, yeah, those are the gospels. Those are part of scripture. But that, those are not in themselves the gospel. Excuse me. <clears throat> uh, some people say, oh, it's the Bible. The Bible is the gospel. Uh, not exact. You know, it's like you get all these ideas. And, and then you get even more abstract ones. It's like uh, the gospel is good people go to heaven. It's like actually, no, only sinners go to heaven that have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. So good people don't go to heaven. Sinners go to heaven by the grace of God. And so it's like all these ideas about what the gospel is, and, and you can really sift through all of them culturally and from church to church, and it, it's crazy how many different ideas there are. But when we say the gospel, when Paul says and speaks of the gospel, he means something very specific. It's not this general statement. It is not everything. The gospel is something very specific. Now, the gospel, the word itself, gospel, means good news. The Greek word for gospel is evangelion. And Paul talks of the gospel as the word of truth in verse 5. And so what this is, the, the, it's good news. Now, good news is not good advice. Good news is not a good suggestion. Good news is not wishful thinking. Good news is good news. It's hard news. And so when we speak of good news and the announcement of good news and the proclamation of the gospel, it is an announcement. It's a proclamation of true reality. It is the word of truth. There's nothing more real than the gospel. It's a proclamation. It's an announcement. In fact, this is where we get the, the word uh, evangelism. From, from evangelion, evangelism, we're pronouncing. Now, when we're sharing our faith with people, we're not sharing our opinions. Like, we're, not, we're not sharing some sort of um, philosophical idea. We're sharing the hard facts that Jesus Christ was a perfect man who came from heaven. He was crucified at the hands of sinners. God raised him from the dead in power, and he gives new life to anybody who puts, his, puts their trust in him. See, that's the facts. Those are, that's the good news of what happens. And we can share as we're evangelizing, as we're sharing our faith with people, what effect that's had on our life, how that's changed us. And, and it's one thing, like, I think a lot of people get 
really worked up or nervous about sharing our faith with others, like talking about Jesus, like it's some weird thing. But listen, the gospel is categorically good news. Like people want good news. People don't want bad news. People want good news. There's something attractive. There's something that that allures people to this good news. And so there's a sense we got what people want. And so we should be confidently speaking about Jesus and what he's done for us. Yet while there's this good news that we proclaim among the church, running alongside of this good news is the world which is trying to give good advice. And good advice just basically says, do this, do that, right? Try harder, grind longer, work smarter, just do stuff. Like, like, like change it up a little bit and things will fall into place. Now, what these things are, they might be helpful in sort of an immediate context. But all these are are techniques and suggestions on how to modify your behavior and your actions. The problem with this is that advice is unable to generate true and lasting change. Now, it it might bring momentary change, like things might change for a minute, but, but typically what happens with somebody who receives advice is that works out for a little bit and eventually it all fades away. I forget the advice and I'm back to where I was. Or that advice doesn't work anymore, I need new advice. It has a momentary effect, but it cannot generate true and lasting change. Now, this is why in our missional communities, when we're talking to each other and we're discipling one another, we always say giving good news is better than giving good advice across the board. Giving good news is always better than giving good advice because advice, like I said, is just behavior modification. Discipleship The last thing discipleship is, is behavior modification. Jesus did not say, come and say, clean up your act. Wipe your nose. Get it together. No, Jesus came to give us a new heart. Jesus came to give us a new life. He comes with good news, and this good news brings true change, and true change always starts in the heart. See, advice deals with the fruit, right? If we want to use this tree illustration, advice deals with the fruit, right? Here's what's on the surface. Here's how you deal with this. Here's how you stop with pornography. Here's how you stop with uh, uh, speaking poorly and gossiping about other people. Here's how you deal with this. A couple of suggestions, advice. And some of it might be really helpful. Don't get me wrong. There, there is a place for counsel and advice But good news cuts to the heart. Good news gets to the root. And by getting to the root, it will deal with the fruit. It will course correct the fruit. But the heart is the epicenter of our being. And because the focus in discipleship is on the heart, Dallas Willard says this. He says, for Jesus and his father The heart is what matters, and everything else will then come along. Now, 
What's he saying here? He's saying like the priority is the heart, and if you get to the heart, everything else, behavior, actions, thoughts, will all follow suit. Now, why is he saying this? Because in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, we're told that the heart is the wellspring of life, that everything about you, your actions, your thoughts, uh, your words, it all comes from the heart. And if you want to change, if you want to have true and lasting change, you have to look at the heart. You have to go to the heart and not just deal with the behavior. And so this is what really shapes the ministry of, well, really, of the church. See, when Epaphras comes back to Colossae, he doesn't say, hey, guys, I've got five tips and tricks for you, right, which has somehow become like the norm of uh, Western preaching is like, here's three tips, here's five tips, here's, you know, we become very pragmatic in this sense, But that's not what he did. He came back with the same good news that Paul preached, which changed Epaphras' heart. And when he came back with that good news and shared it with the people in Colossae, they heard it, and that gospel message changed their hearts as well. Now, this is really the core reason why Paul is offering his thanksgiving. He says, "I I thank God, I always thank God, since we've heard of your faith. Now, this is not a generic abstract faith. This is not a matter of faith in faith, nor is it faith in self, where it's like, I can do this, I got this, I can push through. No, this faith rests on a specific person, the man Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is at the center of this gospel message. And really, if you want to break it down, it's as simple as looking at his name. What does his name, what does Jesus Christ mean? Well, Jesus, or Yeshua, means God saves. And Christ is a title for the Messiah, the one who will come and deliver God's people, the one, the anointed one, the one who would fulfill all the promises of God. And so we see just even in his name, Jesus Christ means Jesus is the one that God is going to do his saving through. Well, and how does he do this? This is the content of the gospel. That Jesus, who was in, in heaven since eternity past, in joyful fellowship with the Father, he enters humanity. He puts on flesh, and he lives among us. He, he comes to this earth living in, uh, he was anonymous for basically 30 years of his life, and then at year 30, he starts preaching and announcing and demonstrating what the kingdom of God is like. And through that whole time that he walked the earth, not one time did he give into the temptation of sin. He was perfect. He was a hundred and no. He, was, he had an undefeated record in always following God and doing what he says. And Jesus being perfect, Corinthians tells us that he who knew no sin became sin. That Jesus went to the cross and died the death that sinners deserve to die, the death that we deserve to die, to satisfy the wrath of God. So therefore, we could be reconciled to God, that we could find forgiveness in Christ, that all of our sins, even the sins that we confess this morning, all the sins you're about to do later today and later on in the year and so on and so forth, all of those sins had been nailed to the cross, that we stand 
in the righteousness of Christ. He, he, we get credited with his. He takes our identity. We get his. And he, in the resurrection, as God raised him from the dead, overthrows sin and death, Satan and all falsehood. And we are made alive with him. In his resur- resurrection, it's where we find our life. And Jesus ascends into heaven, currently is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, and here's the promise, because the gospel doesn't just stop with forgiveness of sins, he's going to come back. And when he returns, he's going to bring everything to its max potential. Or in other words, Jesus is going to bring heaven down to earth. So you can see the gospel message. How much of this had to do with you? Nothing. It's it's all about Jesus. You just benefit from it. It's all about what he did and what he will do because we could do none of this in ourselves. And when people heard this message, they were cut to the heart just as they were back in Acts chapter two at the day of Pentecost and they responded in faith and they said, I believe this is true. I believe what you're telling me about the life, death and resurrection about Jesus, his promises, everything that you're saying is true and I believe in this. Now, to really understand what this means, we really need to articulate what faith is because we can use belief and faith uh, sort of synonymously And so we need to articulate what faith is and what it is not. Because as we live in a post-Christian society, there's a lot of, again, a lot of different ideas, a lot of different versions about what this means. So let me tell you, faith is not intellectual assent. It's not simply saying, I see these theological doctrines and I agree with them on an intellectual level. Faith is not merely a warm, fuzzy feeling. Faith is not simply assimilation into a church culture. Now faith, true faith, is gonna contain components of all three of those, that that there are things that we assent to, that we say, I believe this to be true, and I feel it, I have some sort of experiential feeling and interaction with the truths of this gospel. And because I've had that, I I sense that I need to be part of God's family, and so I'm going to find myself eventually within a church community, within a church family. And so there are three pieces, those three pieces are present, but it's not individually any one of those three things. Now simply put, faith is a radical trust. It's, it's a placing of your entire being, of your entire weight onto Jesus Christ. It's like me leaning on this pulpit, holding myself up, right? I'm, I'm trusting this pulpit to bear my weight. Just as you sat down on the pew, you had no, you had no backup plans when you sat down. Like, oh, what if this pew's not gonna hold up? No, no, you, you sat down, you trusted it, you put your whole weight on the pew. That's what faith is like. That, that's, that's what it is. It's trusting that this will uphold me. And this is what it's like for us to put our trust in Jesus. And we do it without any sort of contingencies, without any sort of reservations. It's a matter of 
Jesus, I trust you. I, I, don't, I don't get it all. I don't completely understand it all. But I see what you've done, and I trust you. And listen, faith is potent. Faith is potent, right? We talk about faith that happens in the heart, right? Belief happens in the heart, yeah, 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 yeah. But it doesn't stay there, right? It doesn't stay contained in the heart. Faith works itself out in action. James, in the letter James writes, he talks about this. A faith without works is dead. He talks about because faith in Jesus isn't just for salvation, but it's for all of life. It's a matter of believing and obeying, trust and obey, of surrendering our lives to him. This is what genuine faith does. It, it acts, right? We're told that we were saved for good works, that, that, that God had planned long before we were saved, maybe even before we were born, maybe even before the foundations of the earth, that God had these things planned that we could step into, not as a way to earn our salvation, not as a way to make ourselves um, more deserving of Jesus, but because we've already received him. And so a person with authentic faith, a person who trusts in Jesus is a doer of good works. Now listen, I think when we think of good works, there's like, like a list of four things, and I don't even know if I can think of four things off the top of my head, but like four things that are really churchy, that have to do with service and uh, greeting people at the doors and doing things that are you know, sort of structured and, and planned out and these mission trips. Listen, Man, you want to know what a good work is? A good work is making your home a welcoming place so outsiders can come in. A good work is making a good meal that makes people go, oh, this food is so tasty, and give thanks to God for tasty food, right? Because he could have made food like taste like cardboard. You know what a good work is? It's, it's, it's going to work and honoring your boss even if you disagree with him. A good work, kids, adolescents, listening to your parents. And as you move into adulthood, it's giving your parents one ear and and figuring things out as you go, giving God the other so he could direct your paths. A good work is making something beautiful, making beautiful art, Good music. These are the good works. And of course, yes, to serve and to love and to care for and to bless. Like all these things encapsulate these good works that God has prepared for us because all of these things demonstrate what the kingdom of God is like. And Paul commends this supreme work that he sees among the church in Colossus. In verse four, he says, I I see... I've heard of your faith, and then he goes, and I've heard of the love that you have for all the saints. Now, a saint isn't like a special level of Christian, right? Like you've got like entry level, you know, intermediate, elite, saint, right? No, no, like every Christian is called a saint, 
And so Paul is saying, I see that you love one another. I see that your love for God is expressed in a way that goes horizontally as well. That, that you have a love for the, sh- the church. And, and I think that really there, there could be two things. So it's like the church that you find yourself in immediately. There's also this notion of being loving of Christians who aren't necessarily part of this fellowship. But I think there's also a missional aspect to this too. That we love those who are not yet saints. As we go into our workplace, neighborhoods, uh, where we work out, all these places where we're on mission to, our love for people is not informed by whether they're Christian or non-Christian. We love all people because Christ loved all people. And so I want to, if I'm a good missionary, I want to love my unbelieving friend as if they're part of the family because I hope that by loving them in that way, God will woo them to himself and they will become part of the family. And I think this, this is a profound impact of the gospel because this loving yourself, not loving yourself, loving others in this way, not Oprah here, It's a supernatural thing. It's, it's tough to do it on our own because what it means is that we have to take our eyes off ourselves and fix our eyes on God and those around us. It means that we live these connected lives, right? To, to love somebody, you've got to be connected. There, there, there has to be some sort of relationship there, right? Love requires sacrifice, Who do we go to 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 get a picture of love? Jesus, what did he do? He loved us and he gave himself up for us. There's patience, there's grace. And listen, it's not something that we do begrudgingly. It's a joyful expression to love all the saints. Now listen, I know this for a fact, that loving people who are like you, that share the same interests, the same personality, the same, uh, maybe in the same sort of class socially, is relatively easy. Like, There's a sense where it's like, we're on the same team, I get you, you get me, and this idea that I can love you, and it comes rather easily because I can bank on you most likely reciprocating that love, right? Jesus actually talks about this on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, like, look, the tax collectors do that. The tax collectors all get along and they have this mutual love and respect for one another because they're on the same platform. And he's like, what good is that? He's calling us to love, specifically in the context of love our enemies, but enemies meaning like anybody who's different or contrary to us. Now remember the... the People in Colossae, they're a diverse group of people. There's a lot of differences, race, religion, social status, politics, wealth, married, singled, educated, uneducated, and the list can go on and on and on. And here we see that Paul's saying there's a love in this church that supersedes all of these differences and brings this church together in radical unity. It's not just a selective love of the saints. It's a love for all the saints. Now, this is what I love about how missional communities are set up. This is not something we can take credit for because we took it from the Bible. And people, when I explain what church is like and explain missional communities, like, oh, that's a new way of doing church. Actually, no, it's like the first way of doing church. 
Right, this is how Jesus brought random people. Look at his disciples, 12 random dudes. Like some are fishermen, tax collectors, zealots. Like you got guys all over the place. Like brought them together. How? Why? Well, it's, it's what Jesus does. He brings people together. And, and what happens with small groups, they tend to gather the people who are in the same life stage or the same interests or li- live in the same neighborhoods and have the same social status. But missional community is a, a hodgepodge of people who probably wouldn't be together unless it were for Jesus. We got young and old, married and singled, retired and working, wealthy, people who are scraping by. There's racial diversity, and we pray by God's grace that there would be even more racial diversity as he grows our church And all of this, living in this type of community, affords us the opportunity to believe the gospel and to love hard, even when it's hard to love. Now, let me ask you, do you love your MC like that? Do you you look at your MC and say, man, I have a genuine, sincere love for you. I desire to be connected. I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to to be patient and forbear with you and do it all joyfully? Or do you play favorites? Do you say like, you know, there's this one person my MC that I just would rather try to avoid the whole night. You wall up to people who aren't like you. Because it, it takes a heart that's been radically changed by the gospel to love like that. Now, a gospel heart will always come with hope. That there is no such thing as a hopeless Christian. And in verse five, Paul says, the cause of this love that the church has for one another actually comes from their hope, right? And their hope clearly comes from faith in Jesus Christ. Now, In this specific context, it's helpful to know that that hope is not referring to an inward attitude, but the object of hope. Now, I've got a quote for for you, and I put it up on the screen here because it's a little lengthy. But G.K. Beale says this, in this letter as a whole, that the hope is laid up in heaven likely refers to the things above, and every time there are these quotes, he's, he's quoting scripture from this book. He says, this, this hope that's laid up for them in heaven likely refers to the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and the life of believers in that upper realm, which is hidden with Christ in God. Now, let me break this down. because He's saying that, that what, he's talk, what Paul is talking about, that this hope that they have in heaven here in verse 5, is likely speaking to the hope, not necessarily of this this, uh, longing, this sincere um, and confident longing for the future, but it's speaking of Jesus himself. We're speaking of Christ who is seated at the right hand of God and of this life of believers that in the upper realm, so like we talked about last week, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, which is hidden with Christ and God. Now, at his final coming... Christ will be revealed, at which time believers also be revealed in glory. 
which probably alludes to their glorious resurrection bodies. And he goes on thus, and he's got a lot of stuff going in here, and here's his conclusion. Hope, in this context, refers to the object of hope. The glorious future is implied. So he's saying here that their hope is not just in a, in a better day to come. Their hope is living in heaven. That their hope is ruling and reigning on their behalf. That their hope is, is vibrant and strong in power. And while Christian hope is, in fact, forward-facing, we do look forward to that day when Jesus comes back and, and restores all things to himself, so that, that, that future consummation. However, what this tells us is that our resurrection life has already begun. See, we're said that, it's said that we are raised with Christ. That's a, a past tense Reality. In fact, in this song that we sang this morning, we said that, we sang that that uh, the resurrected King is resurrecting resurrecting me, and that is true. That there is this process of sanctification where more and more we're becoming more alive in Him. But there's also the truth that we are already resurrected with Christ in a spiritual sense. That this life of resurrection has already begun, and that's what you see playing out in the church in Colossae. They're living out what resurrection life is going to be like when they're loving all the saints. And one day, Jesus will bring heaven down to earth, and this reality will become not just a spiritual reality, but a physical reality. But this reality of we are living the resurrection is what compels Christians to love like this. Friends, the resurrection is here. Now, as Paul identifies this, you know, the, the trifold, evidential, whatever I said, the evidential trifecta of authentic faith, and Paul commends their authenticity, he's like, yeah, it seems like it checks out. Like, there's a true, vibrant faith in Jesus going on here. There's this moment of pause where we wonder, am I a Christian? If Paul were to look in at my life, or even at our church as a whole, would the evidence, this, this uh, evidential trifecta be present here at Sacred City Moline? And I think it's a question that we could be scared of, but we don't need to be scared of it because it's, it's a beneficial question. It's an honest question to ask. Because being in church makes you no less Christian than standing in a garage makes you a car. Just because you're here this morning doesn't mean you're a Christian. These three markers are, are evidence that true faith is at work. Now, the first marker, as, as we run through this together, the first marker, you've got to ask yourself, do you see in your life, do you see in your heart, do you see your sin as nasty? Do you look at it and say, man, that is grotesque. I don't like that. I don't like the way, I don't like what it does to me. I don't like the way that it makes me interact with other people. And so a, a distaste for sin. Do you have a distaste for sin? And have you tried to push away from it? Now, when you try to do that, you're gonna realize real quickly, you're gonna come to the end of yourself. You're gonna realize that you can't do it in your own power, that you need a savior. 
And so this is where the, the first mark, do you trust Jesus as your savior? Do you fully rely on his work, what he's done for you on the cross to give you new life? And then as your Lord, do you increasingly submit to him and say, anything you say, anything you do, God, anywhere you send me, I'm going. Right? Do you have that trust in Jesus? Do you have faith in Jesus? Second one is, as you've been so loved by God, do you have a love for God and his church? Do, do you love the family, the church family that God has put in your immediate circumference? And do you have a, 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 a deep burden for the people to love them, to see them to their best in Christ? And third, do you have a hope that allows you to live like there's more than what's in front of you? Do, do you live knowing that there's a bright future coming? That, that, that actually, not just is it coming out in the, in the front someday, but that bright future is working its way backward into the present. Do, do you believe those things, right? That, that, that's just a three, the trifold checkbox here. Like, do, do you have these things in your life? And really, I think when we, when we ask these questions, I think... To be honest, there are two general responses. There's the first one that's like, I don't, I'm not quite sure. I don't think so. And that's fine. And I think the second response is like, sort of, kind of, a little bit, to some extent. And listen, whether you're number one, right, in the I don't think so, or, or you're in category number two in the sort of, kind of, a little bit, the remedy is the same for both. Listen, if you're saying, I don't think that I can say yes to all these things, listen, that can change. And maybe for somebody, it's changed within this last hour as the preaching of the word and the liturgy and the songs that have been said. God has done something in your heart where, where he has opened your eyes to see, opened your eyes to hear, because faith comes from hearing. And so even in hearing the gospel presented to you today, man, that's an evidence of God's grace. That he's at work in your life. Now the question is, what are you going to do? You've heard it now. What are you going to do with it? You can can table it, shelve it, or you can move toward Jesus as he's moving toward you. And I get it. You might say, like, I can't believe there are too many obstacles in the way. They've got too many questions. Listen, it's not up to you to muster up faith. Faith is a gift from God. Now, our part in this is the invitation Jesus gives us to knock, to ask, to seek. God will be gracious to us. Now, for those of you who say, man, I believe, but I could do better here, I could do better there, there's parts of that that I'm lacking in some places, man, that's true of every Christian. There's nobody in this room, there's nobody on this globe who can say, yeah, I've, I've done it all. Because the reality is, there's no perfect Christians. Like, there's not. There's not a single perfect Christian walking this earth right now. And what that does, it just proves that we still need the gospel 
Like the gospel isn't just the entry point of Christianity. The gospel is what sustains us through our life until we reach the new heavens, new earth. Tim Keller says the gospel isn't the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A through Z of Christianity. It's everything. And the good news is that Jesus lived the perfect life. In fact, he's the only one who can live the perfect Christian life full of faith, hope, and love. Not once was there a lack of faith. Not once was there a lack of hope. Not once was there a a, a moment where he was unloving. He did it perfectly, and by his grace, he forgives us of the ways that we've been imperfect. And by his grace, he gives us the Holy Spirit, which empowers us to fully give ourselves to this life, to to, to believe the gospel day by day, moment by moment, and to see the product of the gospel, this faith, hope, and love manifest in our life. Now, it's not easy. It's not easy. If you come to Jesus hoping for an easy life, man, like, you've got to read the Bible because he says, you're going to be persecuted on my name's sake. You're, you're going to enter hardship because of me. But listen, it, it's not easy. And because it's not easy, we're going to be brought to the end of ourselves. But guess what? Every time you come to the end of yourself, it's just another opportunity to believe the gospel. It's just another chance to look to Jesus and put your trust in him. And in fact, this is living in community and loving the saints in this radical way and having this hope that compels us forward. This is meant to deepen your dependency upon Jesus. It's meant to ignite your prayer life. This is how we tap into it. Because as we pray, what's happening is we're accessing, as we're praying, Jesus is in heaven, we're here on earth, and we're praying the Lord's prayer that on earth as it is in heaven, and what this is doing is accessing the resurrection power, the resurrection life that is yours now, and bringing it down to earth. And listen, that resurrection life, one day, will be ours forever. Like, no hiccups, it'll be easy, it'll be cake, smooth sailing, no tears, no curse, no pain. But for both groups of people, it isn't up for us to do on our own, to to, to generate faith, hope, and love, or or even to, 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 I don't know, white knuckle our way into believing the gospel. We see this here because Paul in this passage, he doesn't thank the Colossians for coming to faith. He doesn't, he doesn't thank them for their intellectual ability to grab on to what Epaphras was saying. He, he doesn't commend them for manufacturing love for the saints or hope. No, Paul thanks God for the faith, love, and hope that has been generated in Colossae. See, it's God who is doing this. This is the evidence of God's grace. And listen, church, God has done this and will continue to do this, I believe, here in Moline. And as your pastor, I thank God for you. Not not because you guys are a bunch of all-stars, but because I can see faith in Jesus Christ. I can see 
love for all the saints. I can see the hope working itself out in the way that you live a, a countercultural life. So I give thanks to God, just as Paul gave thanks to the church in Colosse. And really what does it all is right here in front of us, the Lord's table. This is really what brings about everything that we've been talking about. To see Jesus' body broken, his blood spilled on our account that we might enter into this new life. So as we come to the Lord's table today, know that, that this is the cost. This is what it costs Jesus to give us this new life. But listen, this is also the meal that sustains us as we go about our lives, as we live with faith, hope, and love. And this is meant to stir those things up. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that, that it has not stopped not for a moment has it dropped off or been forgotten, but through since Jesus has come in various places and all times, this message has been going out and has been bearing fruit. We give you thanks for the church in Coloss. Just as messy as they were, we're that messy too. And so we can say there are evidences of grace among this church. And we give you thanks, God, for bringing those things about. And we thank you for your son who is really just the launch pad for all of this. God, I pray that you would deepen our appreciation for Jesus, deepen our understanding of the gospel, give us eyes to see evidences of grace, give us faith to always trust in Jesus, putting our full weight upon him, give us a deeper love for the saints, lead us to repentance in those areas where we need repentance, God, and, and, and stir up hope within us, not just the hope for the future, but the reality that Jesus is in heaven right now. He's reigning and ruling on our behalf and that he is the reason why we can be optimistic about the future. God, we pray this all in his glorious name. Amen.